Hi, thank you so much for joining. I'm Josh. I hope your early January has been going well. And uh, if you're around in the first Sunday of February, I hope you'll consider joining us at our half-day gathering. It's always nice to connect in person, building community and connections. We'll have a link on Dharma Punks NYC and also at Center Yoga, where the Sunday gatherings take place. And if you'd like to support my work, everything I do as a Buddhist pastor, entirely uh, by donation only, there's no charge for access to my talks and the counseling, and everything is done by donation. So the PayPal is on the Dharma Punks website. The Venmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC, and the Patreon you can find by just going to Patreon and Dharma Punks NYC. So thanks for your consideration on uh, helping me continue on this journey of being a Buddhist pastor in the time of hypercapitalism. So tonight, putting all that aside, we're going to be talking about the insight experience, the aha moment, where our understanding of the world is transformed. We'll also be talking about how we get a sense of what reality is and what shakes up that sense of reality. And I'm going to be basing this talk on the work of a bunch of different cognitive neuroscientists, people people like Donald Hoffman, Ruben Laconin, Helene Slagner, uh, Lawrence Barcelo, Lars Mukli. There's a whole bunch of young, exciting neuroscientists that are paving the way for a better understanding how the brain creates our sense of reality. And we're going to see that Buddhist insights have some wonderful overlapping insights that correspond. Best question to ask at the start of this talk is, how do our brains do their job of helping us adapt to our environment? And that's a pretty profound question, because what most of us don't realize is that our brains are essentially encased in an entirely dark box, which we call a skull, and our brains have absolutely no direct access to the world around. There's no direct access even to the body. Brains are essentially an outgrowth of the nervous system. As as organisms and nervous systems become more complex, they need a central region of the nervous system to make sure that the nervous system works in a coherent way. That's our brain. But brains are encased in skulls, and they, they don't have any uh, ports to the outside world. The only thing brains receive are electric signals via nerves. So imagine if you've spent your entire life in a dark room and the only way you have any idea of what's going on outside is by getting a noisy cloud of electrical signals, either switching on or switching off, and that's it. That's what brains work with. So for example, when light from the world hits the cells in your retina, these cells initiate slight currents that go through 
two-inch axons from the back of your eyes to the thalamus, which roots in then to a back region of the skull called your occipital lobe. And it's there that three different regions uh, create a sense of sound, shape, and movement that turn into what we see of somehow as buildings, trees, and people. But how does that happen? How do electric signals get turned into a, a sense of what's going on outside of the body? How do the sound waves that get turned into electrical impulses in the cochlea nerve suddenly get turned into the sounds that we hear as words and music? And the same for touch, taste, and smell. How, do, how does the brain translate nerve signals back into a sense of the world around it? Well, that's actually a massive, in terms of philosophy and neuroscience, that's one of the big questions. So it's pretty clear today that the answer is that brains make sense of the world by predicting what they will experience next. And so as the brain keeps predicting which signals will it will continue to receive, which signals will stop, it starts getting a sense of uh, a slight kind of sense of what's outside. But then the brain has to represent these electrical signals in terms of images and sounds. And so it just does the best it can. It creates an internal representation or what's called a predictive model, guessing what's creating the light signals. And it creates a representation of the sun or it, it guesses what's creating the sound electrical signals and it just guesses, well, that's a voice. And it guesses what creates electrical signals associated with a smell and eventually recognizes or represents pizza or something like that. So the brain has no idea at all if the model that it creates of the world actually maps to the world outside. The only, it just hopes that the map that it comes up with is workable enough that we don't walk around hitting the furniture <laughs> as we move through space. But one of the fundamental issues of uh, neuroscience and philosophy is an issue called qualia, which is there's no way for me to know if the the color red I see is the same as the color red you see when we both look at a tomato, the same tomato. Or if the color yellow I see when we look at a banana is the same. It just is important that the representations I have of my world are good enough that I can move through my world and predict, my brain can predict in some way what's going to happen in future moments so it's a pretty profound recognition that we do not live in any way in any accurate representation of the world as the buddha said some 2500 years ago that mind precedes world 
In, in other words, he was trying to tell us that the world is created by the mind, and that's very true because the world we live in is simply a representation, a guess, of what's going on outside of our bodies. The good news is that we're always updating these simulations. Suppose I'm hiking and below my sight line, I, my, my amygdala subconsciously notices a, a, a shape that is similar to that of a snake. And then it'll activate my sympathetic nervous system. I'll stop or orient towards that object. And then I'll see with staring at it that it's a stick on the ground and not a snake and so from that point on my brain will become a little bit more efficient at modeling sticks rather than snakes everywhere so whenever we find ourselves stopping suddenly staring with confusion lingering with awe caught up in a moment where we're just uh uh, taking in information that's very often the brain is correcting a previous incorrect simulation of the world because some sensory data is no longer matching up with its prediction it's all kind of trippy when we understand how the brain works but it's worth understanding in a profound way because so much of human conflict boils down to this fundamental misunderstanding where we believe that uh maybe someone else's reality is more true than mine or mine more true than others but all representations of reality are at base at base just that representations or predictive models so the brain uh over time makes increasingly abstract models of the world as well so it not only can take light signals and turn them into an oval shape and then process that oval shape and turn it into a face and then look at the characteristics of that face and discern oh that's my sister or my friend or my mother or my my work colleague but over time, the brain can notice and create lasting identities to people, even if people look different slightly from one day to the next. So even if my wife suddenly gets a haircut, I would be able to recognize her because my brain has a very kind of abstract sense of what Kathy looks like. And it can do that for countless other people as well and over time i can develop feelings and expectations of different people certain people i can expect to be soothing other people i can be expect to be intellectually supportive and so on and so forth so my models of the world and people can become increasingly abstract and sophisticated and all of these simulations or models of the world are require countless erroneous mistakes to be corrected over time i should note uh, that the early childhood brain up until the age of about four or five significant elements of our model of the world or a simulation of the world change 
significantly and rapidly because the brain is very, very neuroplastic and it's not had enough experience yet to build a refined model. So children don't realize it, but they are constantly in very, very deep ways, uh, constantly remodeling the world. By the time we're adults, hopefully our models or our simulations or our representations of reality become more stable in that they're more reliable. They better predict uh, from one moment to the next, the sensory data will encounter. So we can stick with our models because our models can help us move through the world to get our survival needs. Um, in time, our brains can even predict situations where our models may well be incorrect. For example, when I walk to the gym, I don't pay attention very often. I'm lost in thought because I can rely on my internal model of the buildings and streets and stuff that I go to my gym every day. So I don't have to pay much attention. But situations where I often get, I can get things wrong. For instance, if I'm in a new group of people that I don't know very well and there's a nuanced social interaction going, I'm going to pay very close attention to what these people are saying. Or when I'm meeting with someone I'm doing counseling with for the first time, or all the times, but even especially the first time times I'm paying such close attention because I don't even have a model that's reliable of this person and who they are. So Every time we experience ourselves paying extensive attention, extensive attention, or we find ourselves confused or agitated, in many ways, it's the brain alerting us to the fact that it doesn't trust its own representation of the world. I hope you're following me, because this stuff is very, very kind of profound. Uh, but it also explains a lot once you uh, get familiar with it. Eventually, we build simulations and perceptions we can trust of the most mundane, regular experiences of our life to spare ourselves from having to re-represent the world over and over again. And luckily for human beings and for most uh, animals, we're born with some innate pre-wired models. So, for example, babies don't really have to figure out what to do with breasts. There's already, through evolution, uh, an internal model to trust, grab onto the breast, to seek the breast, and so on. Uh, so we also have innate senses of what snakes generally do look like. We also have a sense that we feel safer in light versus darkness. We also have innate models that make us feel safer when we are in groups of people rather than alone. And sometimes evolution primed our brains with models that worked in the past but don't work very well now in the present. 
For example, uh, due to evolution, our brain assumes that all bright, sugary, edible objects are healthy and good, and it really emphasizes and it makes those bright, colored, sugary objects uh, activate reward and dopamine and uh, focus attention. But today, unfortunately, bright, sugary, edible objects have no nutritional value. It's called candy, and it's pretty much everywhere around us. So our brain's innate models no longer really match up with reality in that way. Um, much of our, our evolution, our survival depended upon being in a tribe. We are terrified of social rejection, so we tend to constantly over uh, pay attention through hypervigilance of uh, figures that have some uh, power over us. And we very often needlessly revert to uh, see aggression where there is no aggression. We very often see abandonment, especially uh, if there's no abandonment, because these are these are concerns that were wired into us, and our models are very sensitive to stimuli that could represent aggression, emotional uh, abandonment, rejection, and so on and so forth. Um, early life experiences also deeply shape the adult brain because early life regions of the right hemisphere are very neuroplastic, and those regions are what hold our models about what to expect from others. Over time, as the right hemisphere becomes the non-dominant hemisphere and it, the, the circuits become less neuroplastic, it becomes increasingly harder for us to change our emotional expectations or models of how other people will behave. So children of abusive or emotionally um, dysregulated parents, excuse me, will very often see abandonment, abuse, or uh, will constantly be on guard. Their brains will constantly be modeling something that might not be there. Uh, narcissists constantly expect that uh, they will disappear or be utterly worthless unless they constantly seek attention through self-aggrandizement. So these are flawed models due to early childhood emotional wounds. Ideally, our parents, our mentors, our educational systems, our therapists, our spiritual paths can help us reprogram our models or continually re-update our models in ways that don't just help us survive, which is what evolution primed the brain and its models to do, but to actually model the world in ways that help us find happiness and fulfillment. Happiness and fulfillment had very little role in evolution, so our brains are not very good at modeling what objects, situations, people, and practices will help us become happy, but it's very good in helping us simply survive. 
And yes, sometimes we cling to our models despite massive amounts of contrary evidence. Uh, the saddest, most recent example being uh, certain people who support right-wing ex-presidents and who continue to believe everything they say. And even when these figures are distorting the truth, lying, derailing democracy, causing tyranny, people will cling to their model that this figure must be good or must be truthful. Um, so as we live in a simulation or a model that our brains have created to represent the world around us, brains must always continue to test whether they're correct. And it's worth, as I said, remembering that no representation of reality is inherently accurate. The best we can ask is that our internal models of our environments, one, are good enough that we don't wind up in too much uh, physical danger or causing needless conflict, but that also that our models are flexible enough that as our environments change, our models of reality can change as well. Like, for example, if I walk to my gym, most, you know, every day I don't really have to pay attention because I can rely on that model. But suppose one day I notice that a uh, something uh, has obstructed my my way to my gym, <laughs> uh, a new light uh, stop or something has changed. I would want my models, my brain to be flexible enough so that I can change my model of that path so that I won't walk out into traffic or walk into a new brick wall that wasn't there before. And of course, as the brain over aging becomes less neuroplastic, there are times when people's ability to uh, change their models of the world becomes slower and more incomplete. And so people lose the ability uh, in later life sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes to find their way around new environments because their brains just are not neuroplastic enough to create new models of the world that they live in. In a fundamental way, the metaphor that the Matrix, uh, the film, presented very often comes to mind when people learn about simulations of the world, but the matrix got it profoundly wrong in one way that's worth noting, which is that, yes, we all live in a simulation of the world that is not inherently correct. Hopefully it's good enough, but it's not correct. But the matrix kind of suggests that if you take a pill you're going to get a really clear picture of what's going on. And that's never going to happen. You're never going to have a fully accurate representation of the world that you can rely on always. You're always going to have to, as I'm always going to have to check to see that my model of the world is efficient enough so that I don't get into physical danger. I don't endanger others that I'm, 
can get to appointments on time, that I can move through the world as efficiently as possible. The, the fact that throughout our lives we still experience confusion, worry over nothing, means that we are always encountering times that our predictive models are falling short of reality and that we are having to constantly re-update them. But what about aha moments? What about those moments and times where we experience profound insights into the world or our sense of who we are? Well, very often external events can force our brains to interpret data in such a profoundly new way that actually gives us a fundamentally new model that makes our brains even more insightful, even better at predicting, even better at navigating towards happiness. So a classic example of that is sometimes when people encounter the grandeur of nature, being around the, you know, the redwood trees, Grand Canyon, the Teton Mountains, uh, any any of the wonderful splendors of nature that evoke a sense that our thoughts are less important, that we feel at one with our environment, and that forces us to remodel ourselves because for very many years we can model ourselves as somehow profoundly separate from the world around us. And then when we encounter the grandeur and awe-inspiring moments of being at one with nature, it forces us to re-upgrade our model in such a way that we no longer conceive of our bodies and our minds as that profoundly unique or different from our environments. Likewise, when we experience sudden losses, People can find all of their mon, you know, deaths, losses of friends, losses of jobs. Uh, can we can experience a sudden shock where all of our mundane frustrations and plans fall away because we've been forced to confront impermanence, the lack of stability of the world. And the Buddha said when he talked about mental models, he called it sana, or our basic ongoing perceptions of the world. Uh, the Buddha noted that the most profound mistake that humans make in their models of reality is that they tend to assume that people, situations, things are more permanent than they really are. Well, I'll actually quote from him in a moment. Many people try to have aha moments by consuming psychedelics. And it's true that sometimes that does work. In consuming psychedelics, it disrupts the function of the, thal the thalamus that wires the neural, the electrical stimuli that's coming to the brain. It crosses it in ways that forces us to abandon models and come up with new models in the spur of the moment. And sometimes those models can produce aha moments, but just as often 
they can produce nothing but confusion and in some situations can even activate underlying psychiatric disorders. So I don't personally recommend trying to have an aha moment or uh, update your mental models of the world by consuming hallucinogens. But there are some people who, you know, seem to embrace it and do pretty well. So how do we know what differentiates a true aha moment from the kind of manic, sudden fixations that people with bipolar disorder or people who suddenly just get excited impulsively and believe they've figured everything out? What's the difference between a true aha moment or true insight versus simply a, a, a fleeting idea that doesn't really have any resonance or well true realizations are what happens when our mental models of reality update in such a way that one uh, we can uh, confidently relax and predict with greater accuracy what will help us experience well-being they last for a long time. A manic idea that somebody has when they're doing cocaine or they have mood dysregulation will not over time produce a picture of the world that will help them experience ease. True realizations result in a regulated secretion of dopamine without a depressive crash. On the other hand, people who have manic episodes where they've suddenly stumbled upon some insight that they believe is going to blow everything away and they've figured everything out. One, they very often uh, will have a seceding mirrored symmetric decline of dopamine and they'll be depressed <laughs> soon enough afterwards. When we have true aha moments, and we share them with others um, on a similar journey, there'll be a recognition in the other people as well. Whereas if we're having a manic episode and we tell them, hey, I figured it all out. The answer is blah, blah, blah. They'll look at us with dumbfounded concern. Um, true aha moments produce new priorities that change how we react to others when we're under stress. So when we really do have an aha moment in life, like about the impermanence that makes us be less caught up in frustrations, or we get sober from some in, you know, spiral of intoxication, or we uh, have a meditation, spiritual retreat, and we realize what's really most important is connecting with people on the same spiritual path, we start to relate to other people in our life, even under stress in profoundly different ways. So the Buddha had a wonderful teaching on these mental models called sana. And he brought up, most importantly, his concern that our mental models tend to be mistaken because we tend to perceive or rely on a sense that the world is far more reliable and permanent than it really is. And the Buddha really wanted 
practitioners to constantly upgrade or constantly test their mental models of the world. In the Sana Sutta, he said, when one doesn't see change where change is happening, when one expects to experience lasting pleasure in fleeting short-term pleasures like drugs, alcohol, shopping, when one assumes their sense of self is permanent, one wanders in the darkness forever, you know, in trouble. In other words, their models don't match up to reality. But he says, awaken ones, when they focus on impermanence, seeing change happening, that forces us to see the world as it really is. Seeing suffering where they're suffering, seeing through the delusion of a permanent identity of, of who we are. So this brings us to the big moment that uh, neuros, uh, sorry, cognitive neuroscientists like Ruben Laconen and Helene Slagter have been writing a lot about, that meditation allows us to observe our minds literally constructing new simulations or mental models of the world. The more we slow down, we stop, and we pay concentrated attention on the stimuli that's arriving, the more we begin to have a mind that is capable of constantly re-fine-tuning re, uh, uh, its predictive models of the world around it. And we can, in time, also change our mental models to be less attuned to what will help us simply survive and more attuned to what will make us happy. But the profound practice that the Buddha came up with that helps us become more involved in uh, this process of re representing our world in a way that's useful and accurate is the practice of mindfulness. Where the Buddha says, in every moment of life, we have the opportunity to pay attention, close attention, without any preconceptions. What is happening when I'm walking, standing, sitting, lying down, looking one way or another, bending and stretching, carrying tools, eating, drinking, chewing, walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, and so on. He gives an, an endless list of the t opportunities in life to, to be mindfully aware, which means to really pay attention to the stimuli that's arriving and make sure that that stimuli matches up with the model that we've been relying on. If you'd like to try this out in this moment right now, here's what I'll invite you to do before we do our meditation. I want you to take a moment and think of one area of the room that's outside of your sight right now. So just visualize in your mind's eye what that area of the room looks like. That's a mental model. Now what I'd like you to do is just take a moment and actually look at that that area and really pay attention. And as you really pay attention, what you're going to find is that area is different than your mental model. You're going to notice new details. 
you might notice that a piece of furniture is slightly in a different position than you thought. You might notice that it's got far more objects to it. You might notice that something that you expected to be there isn't there. But what has just happened is through paying attention, which is what meditation is all about, you've just changed your mental model of that area. So we can do that, not just with areas of our room, but every area of our life if we pay attention. So thanks for listening. I hope that talk was in some way worth your attention. And now we're going to practice changing our model of ourself by meditating and noticing the shifting sensations of thoughts, feelings, and moods that go on, and really pay attention to what's happening inside of us so that we can develop our new, a new model of ourselves. So close your eyes and look away from the screen. And bring your attention into your body. Don't worry about how you're sitting. In fact, I encourage you to just sit in any way that feels really comfortable. And try to bring your awareness into some sensation or focus your attention on some sensations in your body that feel comfortable. And if you want to see subtle change in your models of yourself and your body, bring your attention, for example, right now, the palm of your left hand. And you might notice that it feels different than you expected it to feel. You might notice a sense there that you've never noticed before. See if you can bring attention now to an area in your left leg. Maybe the sole of your left foot, heel. And just pay attention to the sensations. And because most of the time we have a stable model of what our foot is like, we don't pay attention to those sensations. But now you can 
Bring your mind to your left heel, arch, toes, something, and just notice the sensations and then allow your mind to use this attention to create a new sense a new model of what your foot feels like. So for this practice, what we're going to do is pretty straightforward. We're going to spend time in silence and you're going to allow your awareness to move to any sensation in your body you want. Hopefully, try to choose sensations that feel welcoming in terms of their ease. And you're going to linger long enough on that sensation that you have a new image or a new model. And then once you have a sense of what that area of your body feels like, you can either stay there or move on to a new area. That's pretty much it for a while. Then we're going to do the same practice for moods and feelings. But for the next period of time in silence, just wander around the sensations of your inner cosmos, your body, and just re-upgrade, pay attention, and come up with a renewed representation of your body and the way it feels. You might notice that this practice is actually not only informative, but also quite pleasurable, or at least interesting.
So at this point, if you'd like, you can start paying attention to not just sensations of the body, but either the ongoing change and flow of feelings, feelings of moving from one moment when we feel comfortable, maybe a sense of ease, relaxed. And how do we know that we feel easeful or relaxed? What sensations in the body support that? And then notice when there's any change. How do we know when we become less comfortable? What sensations change or create a new state of being? You might also, if you want, pay attention to the changing array of thoughts the mind generates. Just watch times when there is a desire to think, figure out, annotate. Or you could use this time simply to listen to the sounds around you. Pay attention to the the sounds that are arriving and do they match up with our previous models of our auditory environment. Any area of your life that you really pay any sustained attention to, you'll find that your sense of what's going on around you will be updated. The models or internal representations you've relied on will be changed. And thanks to the fact that your brain is flexible enough, neuroplastic enough, you can actually change your perception of the world around you the more you keep paying attention without any preconception to slow down and pay attention.
One of the more interesting practices of paying close attention to our internal experience is that sometimes if we pay attention to some area of the body, we begin to notice that there's all this underlying tightness or holding or stress that's going on that we didn't previously note in our model, our simulation of what, for instance, our neck or shoulders or hips felt like. And then when we bring attention really to those areas, we can see, wow, I've really got a lot of tightness there that's unnecessary. And so we can use this not only to change our model, but we can also then address our bodies in ways that create a new experience. We can breathe in, soften, relax, let see if we can release some of the tightness there. And then while we're observing an entirely new appreciation and sense of the body starts to take hold in our simulation of self. So at this point, um, you're invited to open your eyes. <laughs>